Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. And don't miss Feedback Fridays when we carve out space to respond to your thoughts and questions. We recently released a bonus episode on Tasha and Keith's Sundance experience. That's me and Tasha. And we've recently <laughs> begun sharing our recommendations for films and film-related items via standalone segments of your Next Picture Show. You can find it all at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Genevieve Kosky and Tosh Robinson. Scott Tobias will not be joining us for this episode. In his stead, we brought in a more romantic-minded Scott, Scott Meslow. Scott's the author of the new book, From Hollywood with Love, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of the Romantic Comedy. Scott, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So what made you decide to write a, a romantic comedy book? You know, it, it felt like it was such kind of, um, they were movies I loved, and it was such fertile ground to kind of dig in a little deeper than I had seen done before. The book starts in 1989 with When Harry Met Sally. And so to to kind of say, I'm going to take a 30-year block, because I sold the book in 2019, to, to pull the curtain back a little bit, and just kind of look at how the rom-com genre evolved over that time, and to talk to people who made the movies, you know, the with the filmmakers, writers, stars. It just felt like there was a story there, and I was happy to find out that I was right. Excellent. Well, we wanted to bring in Scott for this week's pairings for obvious reasons, which you just just heard. We're taking a deep dive into rom-coms past and possible future via two films about famous women who begin dating ordinary schlubs. They're exceedingly handsome and charming schlubs, of course, but, you know, still schlubs. First up, we'll be covering Notting Hill, a 1999 film written by British rom-com screenwriter extraordinaire Richard Curtis, directed by Roger Mitchell, and starring Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. We are inspired to revisit Notting Hill by the narratively similar new film Marry Me, starring Jennifer Lopez as a heartbroken pop star and Owen Wilson as the rando who might be her perfect match. We'll start off with a trip to Notting Hill after the break. A very ordinary boy bumps into a girl and takes her home. The bathroom's on the top floor. It happens all the time. But she is no ordinary girl. She is Anna Scott, the most famous film star in the world. And when they get together, everyone has something to say. Anna Scott, Anna Scott, Anna Scott. Hello, Anna. Hi, guys. Oh, Jesus, fuck. They always do that when I leave a house. This is a peculiarly strange person to have um, got involved with. It's not Fergie, is it? You must be Spike. Thank you, God. I don't want to interfere on the thing, but she's in your house. Yes. Well, isn't this perhaps a nice opportunity to... But when two worlds collide... I live in Notting Hill, you live in Beverly Hills. Everyone in the world knows who you are. And the news is bad... Come on, 
tomorrow there'll be pictures of you in every newspaper in your goddamn underwear. And getting worse. I went out in my goddamn underwear too. Get out. How does an ordinary boy keep the most famous girl in the world? The fame thing isn't really real. I'm also just a girl. Standing in front of a boy. Asking him to love her. In 1999, Julia Roberts was rounding out a decade as one of the most famous actors in the world and one of the most recognizable faces on the planet, a period in which her every move and each new development in her personal life became the subject of intense scrutiny and discussion. Her 90s movies, mostly hits, contributed to her fame, but they also became one element in a larger story, one she had a hard time controlling. The same decade saw Hugh Grant's profile increase dramatically, at first because of his roles in films like Four Weddings and a Funeral and Sense and Sensibility, then via a well-publicized scandal. Like Roberts, he'd gained fame but lost privacy. There's a scene around the midpoint of Notting Hill when first William Thacker, the proprietor of a barely-hanging-in-there London travel bookstore played by Grant, and then Anna Scott, the American movie star who's achieved a Roberts-like level of fame played by Julia Roberts, unexpectedly face the full brunt of the British press when word leaks that Anna has spent the night at William's house. Both characters react with such palpable fear and repulsion that it's hard not to think about the real-life parallels informing the scene. They've been there before. The film doesn't exactly discourage audience from entertaining such thoughts, but it also doesn't invite viewers to dwell on them. As in Four Weddings and a Funeral, Curtis's writing is at its best when it emphasizes the humanity of his characters, and in Notting Hill, that humanity comes with a lot of sadness and disappointment. William is a divorcee surrounded by friends and family members whose support of one another at times seems to be all that keeps them going. But if his relationship with Anna teaches him anything, it's that sadness and disappointment is universal. After their chance encounter escalates into mutual attraction and then a stop-and-start relationships, he comes to know her as a person beyond her ubiquitous image and the tabloid stories. The film's most famous line, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her, doubles as a statement of theme. In the world of Richard Curtis, we're all just, above all, souls in search of someone to love. There's a melancholy to Notting Hill that keys off the tired look in Roberts' eyes as much as the dialogue, but it's also very much a comedy, one that's filled with criticisms like quirky characters, witty one-liners, and corny moments, and references that are maybe just a little smarter than the movie wants to be, or really needs to be. Curtis can be cloying and cutesy in ways that great. There's a reason love actually has become the Christmas season's most divisive staple, but he rarely seems phony. He's a writer interested in using the devices of the rom-com to explore matters of the heart. In Grant, he found both a muse and an ideal vessel, an actor capable of conveying soulfulness and yearning beneath witty dialogue and fluttering eyebrows. But while they collaborate together again, this mostly marks the end of the floppy, stammering Hugh Grant persona Curtis helped shape. Grant would soon be playing cads and ne'er-do-wells in films like Bridget Jones's Diary, also scripted by Curtis, and About a Boy, and otherwise twisting up his familiar persona. The film marks the beginning of the end of a phase for Roberts, too. Runaway Bride would follow later in the summer of 1999, but Aaron Brockovich and other persona-pushing roles were just around the corner. Notting Hill allowed both actors to embody and add shading to the sort of characters that helped make them famous, and drew all those flashballs of reporters in the first place, but it also allowed them to tell those characters goodbye. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Here, let me uh, get your hands off. I'm really sorry. I, I live just over the street. I have um, water and soap. You can get cleaned up. Oh, thank you. I just need to get my car back. 
I also have a phone. I'm confident that in five minutes we can have you spick and span and back on the street again. In the non-prostitute sense, obviously. So, everyone, this is a, an unusual setup for a romantic comedy, which usually involves meet-cutes between equals or near-equals. What else about this and other Richard Curtis scripted films set them apart? I, I know in, you know in, in your book, Scott, you talked about how Four Weddings and a Funeral earned a level of respectability that rom-coms usually don't. And I think that has kind of continued to be a thing for Richard Curtis. What, what do you think? What, what's, your, what's your take on this? We'll start with you, the expert. Well, thank you. Notting Hill is a really interesting example to me of Richard Curtis kind of doing the Richard Curtis thing just all the way to the nth degree. And I'm happy I get the chance to talk about it here because it does not come up as much in the book as I would like, because at some point the book was going to be all about Hugh Grant and I had to pull back a little bit. In this particular movie, um, I think what strikes me as so interesting about Richard Curtis is that he has a bit of an inferiority complex, no matter how successful and famous he turns out to be. I mean, there's a reason when he was making Four Weddings and a Funeral, he hated the idea of casting Hugh Grant because he thought Hugh Grant was a little too handsome to play what is essentially a Richard Curtis analog. And this movie just sort of goes all the way with that, where he's so interested in kind of soulful, witty, charming guys who are not really worthy of the women who they're interested in, who also more often than not are kind of ciphers. And I think to make the object of his affection the most wonderful woman in the world and to have him ultimately become very attracted to this kind of regular guy with the blue door and the travel bookstore, that seems to come from a real place in Richard Curtis because it's a motif he just returns to in different ways over and over again. This might be the Ur text for sort of unpacking the Richard Curtis archetype. So I'm curious to hear what you guys thought of it. Yeah, I hadn't uh, revisited this film in a, in a really long time. So I had, I had forgotten like a lot of the specifics of it. Uh, so it was really interesting to revisit it. And I never really like held it in my mind as like a peak rom-com for whatever reason. And rewatching it, I was like, oh, I get it. I get why it has the, this reputation. Maybe it just like caught me at the wrong time the, the first time I saw it. But I really, really enjoyed seeing it this time around. And speaking to what you're talking about with Curtis, Scott, um, this isn't really a, a, like a new observation, but this does feel kind of like like a bridge between, you know, four weddings and a funeral and love actually. It just kind of, it has that... I guess, respectability, kind of, or maybe melancholy is the better uh, adjective of, of four weddings and a funeral. But it does kind of have a little more of that madcap energy and also just sincerity that we get uh, in uh, later Curtis films. But what I really just enjoyed about this one this time is, again, kind of going back to the four weddings and a funeral formula is the friend group. Like, I think that dinner scene is maybe my favorite. There's a couple other uh, contenders, but just like the scene of them all sitting around arguing over who gets the last brownie because they have the saddest story. Like, that is kind of the the pinnacle, I think, of the vibe this uh, movie or the kind of the needle it's threading in terms of its vibe. There's obviously a, this really interesting meta component going on with both Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant, but especially Julia Roberts and her performance is so interesting here. And it's not necessarily my favorite Julia Roberts performance, but it's really interesting in the context of this movie. And I think it ultimately works. But you know, it's not necessarily one of the first five Julia Roberts roles I'm going to think of, but it's it's really I think it's a really smartly done casting choice and a ultimately a pretty good performance. What she about begins you guys? the film as, as, as kind of kind of dour, and, and I'd forgotten how like you know kind yeah. of removed. I don't think and, begins. And, I think she's pretty dour throughout. 
yeah, like she's scowling for so much of it. Like, she, mm-hmm. and I think that's again kind of like a. a choice a meta choice because like what is julia roberts known for at this point her smile and we even get that little glimpse of one of her films where her co-star is telling her smile 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 and the big payoff is when she finally does it so like in the context of an actor who is protecting herself and you know her image like it makes sense that she wouldn't just give that smile up i liked that yeah i agree i find What's striking about this performance, and it's maybe not one that I had even fully appreciated until after watching My Best Friend's Wedding again, because I think this was just kind of the era where within a few years, she was really unpacking the Julia Roberts persona in a way that was often uncomfortable. In some ways, I find My Best Friend's Wedding a little more successful because that's kind of interrogating the audience's relationship with her and how likable they find her and what they're willing to let her get away with in a rom-com. This is more about her interrogating her relationship with celebrity to me, and I, I get why that's interesting to her. I'm not sure it's as interesting to watch for two hours. Mm. Uh, it seems like a little more of a personal story. But I do think that that kind of innate guardedness, the kind of the way she kind of her eyes flitting around the room, the, the, the constant sense that someone is about to do something or say something horrible to her, that is clearly coming from real place. And I, th- I find that to be a very interesting choice. I mean, I get why the material spoke to her. I honestly feel like she's doing a performance in a lot of this movie that's very famous movie star keeps her face neutral because anything that she gives away of herself is going to be reacted to and possibly spun up into a news story. It just it ha- comes from the same place as like the queen wave, you know, the the famous like from the wrist, very slight wave that's just very practiced and artificial because like anything that you do apart from the absolute minimum is going to be analyzed and overanalyzed. But I, I agree with you. I don't know that it's interesting to watch for as long as we spend watching it here. I want to dive more into that performance. I want to dive more into that brownie scene that uh, Genevieve mentioned, but I don't want to move away from Kate's actual question too quickly because I think it's a really interesting one here. I would have sworn before this uh, podcast prep that I had seen this movie and a little ways into it, I kind of went, oh, okay, I've definitely have not seen this movie. Wow. Hmm, and I was so cool. <laughs> so baffled by the experience uh, throughout because I just kept asking, who is this for? Why is this such a strange film? And I think the reasons it's such a strange film are the reasons Richard Curtis's movies stand out, the, the things that unite them. Scott brings up in his book the fact that he finds it very important to give even small characters complete plot arcs of their own. You know, all of those friends have their own little stories and and their own little arcs going on. They're not just mm-hmm. uh, cough, cough, gay besties, uh, as we will perhaps talk about when we talk about Marry Me. They're not just, you know, <laughs> characters who just exist to to prop up the protagonist. They all have their own little characteristics and their own little stories. And the fact that one of them is the protagonist's best friend from college who he had a crush on, but who married someone else and he's still carrying a torch for her. But 18 months ago, she fell down the stairs and broke her back. And now she's in a wheelchair for life. And she's just coming to the terms with the fact that she can't have children. And that that's a very minor subplot in this movie. <laughs> it's so strange from a from a rom-com perspective. So I think that in terms of like 
looking at, at the big picture of Richard Curtis, there's that idea that everybody has to have a story and that everybody's story is important. There's the structural complexity, which is a big thing with his rom-coms. I mean, looking at Love Actually or Four Weddings and a Funeral or even something like About Time or or this, there's a like a, an artificial conscious building uh, aspect to the whole thing. That's just very like rigidly structured in an elaborate way. But getting back to that, why is this movie so weird uh, question, like looking at Richard Curtis's movies, he has a real tendency to write rom-coms that privilege the male point of view and the male character. And that's just not common. You know, rom-coms are usually written and directed as romantic fantasies for women. And the men are often very bland. They're often not very specific. They're smiley hunks without a lot of personality. But films like About Time, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Yesterday in particular, even uh, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, like a lot of these stories are much more centered on male points of view and male experiences. More than half the stories of Love Actually, if I recall correctly, are about male friendship, male relationships, male perspectives. And the big outlier in his filmography are the two Bridget Jones movies, which are taken from novels that he didn't write. So, yeah, I I think that one of the big things about this movie is just it's so much more Hugh Grant's character's story. It's the story of a romance, but we find the the leading lady like pretty impenetrable for an awful lot of the story. It's not about her feelings. It's not about her love. It's not about her angst. It's all about how that relates to him. It's all about how he interprets it and how he's guessing around it and how baffled it leaves him. And that just feels really unusual in a rom-com, especially a modern rom-com. Tosh, I will not stand for this. Even though he didn't write it, I will not stand for this Bridget Jones's baby erasure. There are three Bridget Jones films. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think like the rest of the world, you may have forgotten. <laughs> the third well, one. We, I mean, we're, we're specifically talking about movies that he wrote. I'm, I'm yeah, only looking at his writing credits because, you know, his directorial yeah. credits is a completely different thing. And if you want to talk about what distinguishes his movies from a directorial perspective, like I'd love to hear that because I don't know that I have an opinion. Oh, mm. We should maybe focus a little lot more on this movie before yeah. getting in, into that. But I, I did want to kind of pick up a thread that you brought up, Tasha, about the leading ladies in Curtis's films and how they are often ciphers. And that was certainly the case in, in Four Weddings and a Funeral and is the case again here. But I think it feels, at least to me, it feels less weird here because Anna is a celebrity and is unknowable to the average person. And the breaking down of that unknowability is kind of the crux of their relationship. But what struck me when I like actually like thought back over the plot of the film, and this maybe goes back to the structure thing you, you brought up too, is like they don't actually spend that much time together. Like their relationship spans a long period of time, but the actual like time they spend in each other's physical presence is pretty limited. And it's often like not going well, <laughs> you know, like, uh, like their their first meeting is, yes, it's, it's cute and it's charming and allows Hugh Grant to be stammery, but like, she does not seem to be enjoying herself at all until the, the kiss happens. And I think that kiss is, it is kind of an odd moment because it makes you kind of recalibrate everything you just saw about how she was approaching this situation or how she was processing this situation. Again, I think it works, but I definitely understand the feeling of like, this is a an odd like love story to be watching. 
I, to be fair, I don't mean odd necessarily to be equated with bad here. I, I love odd films. I love films that don't fit the pattern. And rom-coms can be very, very programmatic. So I, I don't sure. think it's a problem that this movie is odd. But it did leave me sort of in a much more analytical mode than rom-coms often do. Well, good thing you're recording a podcast on it. <laughs> Analyze away. Keith, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, it's, it also a scene for when he's in a funeral, but this film resembles it in many ways, best I can recall. And they kind of are written from the perspective of men who don't get women, or at least don't get women who might be love objects for them. Like, like, like uh, Will has a great relationship with Bella, but only because romance has been taken off the table for him. It seems like the, you know whatever relationship they have may have formed after the romantic attack. You know any sort of possibility of, of romance was was removed. It's a curious uh, feature. Well, and here's where I need to come in with a little Richard Curtis backstory because I think that's so important to understanding the weird way that he writes rom-coms. And again, I don't mean weird pejoratively. It's just no one else is really doing it like this. It's we talk about Bridget Jones. Helen Fielding is someone he dated in college. Hmm. You know, there's there's a character named Bernard in all of these movies who's in this case it's, you know, Hugh Grant's embarrassing waiter character. And that's the guy he says stole a different college girlfriend. <laughs> like there was a guy named Bernard, he is an MP. And Richard Curtis is still kind of carrying that torch and has a chip on his shoulder about it. And so he writes an embarrassing character named Bernard into all of his rom-coms. Like, he is a guy who still talks, you know, and has been with his partner now many years. Uh, they're not married, but, you know, long, long-term long relationship with children. But he still kind of talks about his college days in this sort of wistful, swoony, like, a little dramatic, maybe a little over dramatic, some might say. These kind of he has this real emotional baggage about the relationships of his youth, and and I think it manifests in the kind of rom com protagonists he. You look at Four Weddings and a Funeral, and who he, he wanted Alan Rickman to star in that, and I think that in some ways is a closer surrogate if it, the movie would never have worked because then you wouldn't have everyone swooning over Hugh Grant and it becoming this international sensation but it would be a little closer to that Richard Curtis character of like the guy who doesn't typically get the girl and the guy who if only they realized how devastatingly witty he was like say when he writes a script full of devastatingly witty lines of dialogue <laughs> then maybe at that point the woman would realize that he's the guy even if she's you know, in the case of Four Weddings and a Funeral, an American woman who we only meet at weddings, who has an entire romance that exists off screen, including a marriage, but ultimately runs to him in the rain because she realizes how wonderful and singular he was all along. Like that, that to me is the Richard Curtis arc. And I think the trick of Notting Hill is that he finds a way to do that without totally selling out the female protagonist because she is elusive by definition. She can't open up to anyone. So she has to be this sort of cipher figure that that then Hugh Grant's character can eventually get to open up, but her her unwillingness to open up, which which means Richard Curtis doesn't have to write the complexity in there, actually makes sense for me <laughs> in this particular case. Okay, wait, wait. So this came up in your book. Richard Curtis felt that his heart was broken in college by the the woman that he loved who left him. And he says that like the next 10 years of his life were writing rom-coms sort of in an attempt to rectify that, that heartbreak by making up stories where the man ends up with the love of his life. Bernard was the person that 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 woman ended up with, and he he's villainized him in all of his movies yes. since then. There is a it's member of parliament named Bernard Jenkins. Richard Curtis has been shockingly candid about this. You would think this is the kind of thing you would never admit, but but sure enough, I mean, again, if you take Richard Curtis's word for it, this embarrassing Bernard character is a literal real person who is in parliament who stole his kind of like upper crust girlfriend. It, it, it's amazing. a great from Oxford, like like it really is like 
there is a rom-com to be written about the behind the scenes stories of Richard Curtis's relationships like this. It's, it's a really <laughs> fascinating thing going on with him. I will say there is nothing in Notting Hill that made me think this reads like it's designed to rectify the true life heartbreak of uh, an actual person. You know, it it feels so, so mannered and and plotted. It doesn't feel like a creed de corps. It just doesn't feel like it's it's coming from a a place of anguish. But it maybe is coming from a place of personal experience, like the specificity of the whole junket sequence. I was waiting to bring that up. We we, we definitely (laughs) speak into that. Because, you know, we're all entertainment journalists. We've all been to those exact junkets where they park you in a lobby with uh, 20 other journalists who are all waiting their turn. And they have posters up everywhere for the movie that they're talking about. And they have the the director and maybe the writer and maybe the producer and maybe some of the stars in different rooms. And you get kind of shunted in and out in a here's your 10 minutes like so much of that w- just was so clearly drawn drawn from life it's a very specific experience that you i don't know that i've ever seen it in cinema quite this way let alone weaponized as a way to make you grant profoundly uncomfortable as he tries to figure out how to pretend he's from horse and hound magazine it, it just needed the, the tiny diet coke cans they always serve at those things to really complete the picture maybe maybe tea with like like individual servings of honey in little glass jars uh-huh <laughs> this is sort of a low-key hollywood satire on top of like mm-hmm. like not from the perspective of the filmmakers but from the perspective of people who've just sort of like done those horrible junkets as freelancers like yeah. you can't write a scene like that without without having been on the other side and just frowned at getting the 17th same question of the day i thought that whole sequence was very funny from a discomforting hugh grant perspective but it made no sense to me in terms of the characters and who they're supposed to be because those things are wrapped around movie stars like they may not have a ton of control over their schedules but they they do have the freedom to say excuse me will you please leave the room to the director or producer whoever that was supposed to be that kept walking in and and making notes and making everybody uncomfortable they do have the freedom to say i need an extra five minutes with this person she literally could have brought him into the room the first time and said could you leave us alone for a minute hi i just wanted to apologize sorry about that thank you for coming in thank you for the flowers goodbye the whole thing would have been over And I guess maybe she doesn't because she wants to prolong the time she spends with him. But again, she's she's just coming across as like so opaque and so difficult to read. You don't really know why she's putting him through all of this. It seems like maybe she's uncomfortable as well. But she's also a veteran at this. Like she knows that she has complete control over the situation. And yet she chooses not to exert it. And we don't know why. And that just becomes a a pileup of very specific character choices that we don't understand. And it it, it just kind of bothers me, like, even while I'm laughing at, are are you planning to have any horses in the next one? (laughs) I do love that bit. (laughs) I mean, I don't think that especially in this form or in the genre you you necessarily need to have airtight character motivation for every scene to work but i if if i were to kind of speculate why anna didn't do that i might bring up the fact that she is in a relationship at this point and has not revealed that fact but presumably the guy who keeps coming in and out or the people or the people running this uh junket do know that and might 
notice if she asked them to leave the room so she could talk to the attractive man who showed up with flowers. That's just how I might explain it away. I've forgotten Alec Baldwin was was the uh, was the boyfriend, and that, that was a uh, it, it made me laugh all over again. <laughs> that made me laugh too. Although when when Hugh Grant tells us that his wife left him for a man who looks exactly like Harrison Ford, and then he makes an Indiana Jones joke uh, halfway through the movie. I was positive that, uh, having not looked at the cast list, I was positive he was going to turn up. As soon as Alec Baldwin turned up, I'm like, oh, this is going to be another meta joke. And then I felt bereft that we didn't get that uh, (laughs) gag playing out. It's not like uh, Harrison Ford hasn't done rom-coms. I want to talk a little bit about Reese Ethan's, uh, not so much Reese Ethan's, but the role he plays and as it relates to other Curtis films, where Curtis always has like these really broad comic elements that come this close and sometimes maybe a little further than this close to feeling disjointed and, and part of a different movie. I mean, does the balance work for you? And did, did you know, it really, I mean, it's worth remembering that he's also the co-creator of Mr. Bean and there, you know, is very comfortable with broader, less, less uh, dialogue driven sort of comedy. Yeah. I think part of what audiences like, and maybe sometimes I don't like about Richard Curtis romantic comedies is that veering into the cartoonish, like, Love actually made so much more sense to me when I learned that Rowan Atkinson's character was supposed to be a Christmas angel originally. And that's why he's just kind of like mincing around in the background, manipulating everyone. And then that <laughs> subplot was just cut. So he's just like this weird character. Like, I think in some ways, the Reese fans character would have been would have made more sense to me if there was one more beat that. And it's funny because Tasha, you break up quite correctly that like all of these characters also get really quick, incredibly complicated backstories. And and your summary of what happened with his college friend is about as much time as the movie gave it. And it is it is an extremely <laughs> complicated story. Uh that but but I in a weird way I also found it like kind of compelling in a way that a lot of rom coms just kind of dust right over that. And even the most cursory effort to make these real people I found a little interesting. Yeah, you didn't know who these people in the background are and then that they have lives yeah. of their own versus versus, you know, even if it's just a couple lines of dialogue, which is more than most films give you. Right. They're, they're somewhat motivated. And, and that's where I kind of hate the Reese fan stuff until he gets together with mm-hmm. Hugh Grant's sister. And then he has this moment where he stops traffic so Hugh Grant can get to the press conference at the end. Even that tiny little beat sort of justified all of the nonsense that led up to that point to me. Because I was kind of touched by like all of his friends having their little part to play in getting him to his true love. Like That's where the, the rom-com mechanics locking into place I find very satisfying. I will also say it was just refreshing to see a movie from 1999 that has a character in a wheelchair who's presented as desirable and vivacious and with a lot of personality and a lot of independency, (laughs) agency. Yeah, not just uh, not just desired, but like desired by multiple people and having a like a still very passionate relationship with her husband, also a woman of a certain age. Like these things were very rare in 1999 movies in general, regardless of genre. And I was just I was kind of impressed with how that character was dealt with. Uh, Reese Ethan's and the uh, the comedy bit, though, like I feel like that character would have been fine if there had been about 25 percent of of the amount that we actually get of him. He feels like he's he's a leftover from with nail and I who's just like slumming it, you know, who's just crashing at their pad. And there's an awful lot of him, both in the sense of of how much of him you see and uh, the sense of how much time he spends on screen. Though I do love the moment where he ignores 
all warnings and goes outside to see what's going on. And as soon as uh, the billions of paparazzi start taking photos, he just starts posing in his underwear. That was that was a charming little bit of comedy. I like his incredibly specific collection of T-shirts. Um, actually, no, the, <laughs> the character made himself right. Like that first alien one in particular, definitely looked like he handmade it. I joke, but that's actually like I wish that wasn't our introduction to that character because I really don't care for that scene or bit. I guess, um, and I think the character, uh, as as Scott points out, uh, gets a lot better over the course of film, particularly in that uh, Mad Dash of the Press conference, which is another kind of standout scene for me. And real quick, before we get off the subject of side characters, though, I have to bring up, I think his name's Tony, the restaurateur, who feels like he's another subplot that maybe got cut uh, because he's like not part of the like initial dinner. And he's not part of the rush to the airport, but he is part of this little his restaurant's closing scene we get i don't know does anyone have more intel there what, what am the i the hell was up with that <laughs> i that do is, know the original cut of this movie was well over three hours long so oh. it would not <laughs> shock me at all if that was the case i mean okay. richard curtis turns in super long cuts so, okay. so i guarantee there was something more there how much i can't say that makes so much <laughs> sense it, it definitely felt like a character who had a lot of setup scenes that got cut and then they just couldn't figure out a way around the lines uh, like to explain why they're in an otherwise closed restaurant although given mm-hmm. the way hollywood movies work where there's always a parking place right in front of you know even a government building in the heart of downtown and where entry level publishing assistants are making enough money in new york to afford a gigantic five room apartments to themselves i just don't think people would have questioned like why is nobody else in this restaurant but yeah, that scene is introduced with uh, with them saying like, "I'm sorry about your restaurant, Tony. Like you you dropped out to create a restaurant. You worked really hard for a year. Nobody came, and now it's going under. It's closing tomorrow, and this is our our big kickoff. Like it's a lot of explanation given that he knows all of this, and he's sitting at the table with them, and then he never comes up before, and he barely comes up afterward." It's not the most elegant scene in the movie. <laughs> so you don't have that one friend who has a restaurant that fails after a year, but you never hang out with them any other time. I mean, I guess if he's trying to keep a restaurant afloat, he's probably really busy and does not have time. Yeah, but, it all makes sense. I will say, I just don't spend a whole lot of time explaining my friend's career arcs to them before before dinner. <laughs> So one scene that is elegant, and there are, there are a couple of, I think, really nice touches in this. I, I really love the one-shot changing of the seasons scene. Mm-hmm. And, I, and uh, yeah. you know, we're giving a lot of credit to Richard Curtis for this, uh, which makes sense. His personality is all over it. But it's directed by the recently departed uh, Roger Mitchell, uh, who had, you know, a, a quite, quite strong career. Uh, this was, I know he had health problems immediately after this and before making his next film, Changing Lanes, which is an underrated thriller from 2002. But I, th- I think you, you can feel the touch of a real director uh, or director who, who with an idea of what the film should look like, uh, particularly in, in, in scenes like that, like the, the, the Ain't No Sunshine Changing the Season scene, I think is, is quite lovely. And just all in all, it's, it's a really nicely put together piece of filmmaking. 
I have to cop to misspeaking because I just said Richard Curtis turns in long cuts. And of course, it's not a Richard Curtis film. It's a Roger Mitchell film. Uh, (laughs) I think that's owing to Richard Curtis. Everything feels like a Richard Curtis film because of the way he writes dialogue. But in addition to that, you know, Sunshine sequence, which I do think is, is lovely and artful in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect from, you know, Notting Hill in 1999. There's stuff like there's a great crane shot in the park when they, when he, you know, Anna and Will have gone in and there's just kind of a long shot of them on a bench that's just a little more artful than it needs to be where Will walks away and then kind of walks back. There's a movie within a movie where Anna's <laughs> like in, a, in some sort of awful looking space blockbuster, but there's still a kind of artful shot of her like with the camera moving around all crazy as she walks down a hallway. I like that her space boots were very clearly ski boots in that scene, but uh, but otherwise, yes, it was very well done. <laughs> yep. So he may not have had the biggest budget, but I do. I I find his career a little tragic because it's just you know he the, he would have done Captain Corelli's Mandolin after this, which you know if he hadn't had his health problems, he was up for Quantum of Solace, the James oh, Bond wow. movie, until he had health problems. Like Captain, I, I think Crowley's he really Mandolin might have been a better movie uh, with with it behind it. Who knows? I think so. Like I, I think there he, which is why I don't want to undercut the credit. I think he deserves for what works in this movie um, because I don't think it's that easy to pull off, and I think he does some really nice stuff with this material. Uh, you know what? I'm, not to sidetrack too much, but you know what a nice rom com he did was uh, I like Morning Glory. Did you guys ever see that one? Oh yeah, yeah I like Morning Glory a lot. Yeah, it's a good one. I don't yeah. think I saw that. Harrison Ford, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Sure Michael is. Adams. It all Thank comes you. full circle. Yeah. <laughs> and with that, we're going to take a quick break, but we rack in just one moment to talk about Notting Hill some more. <laughs> well, wait. What about me? I'm sorry. You think you deserve the brandy? <laughs> well, a shot at it, at least, huh? All right, well, you'll have to prove it. I mean, this is a very, very good brownie, and I, uh, I'm going to fight for it. I've been on a diet every day since I was 19, which basically means I've been hungry for a decade. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've had a series of not nice boyfriends, one of whom hit me. Uh, and every time I get my heart broken, the newspapers splash it about as though it's entertainment. <laughs> and it's taken two rather painful uh, operations to get me looking like this. Really? Mm, really. Mm. <laughs> and one day, not long from now, my looks will go. They will discover I can't act. And I will become some sad middle-aged woman who looks a bit like someone who was famous for a while. No, nice try, gorgeous, but you don't fool anyone. <laughs> so we mentioned the the tale of woe, I want the last brownie scene uh, before. One of the you know the highlights of that or one of the most memorable moments is is Anna attempting to explain why being a movie star sucks. And everyone kind of laughs it off. But I think she actually makes a pretty convincing case for the more awful elements of of being a movie star, particularly on on her level. I mean, it's it's a persuasive bit of writing and acting because we did just learn that she made $15 million for her last movie. Did you find that convincing? I don't know that it's convincing compared to the story of the woman who broke her back is in a wheelchair for life and can't have children, which she desperately (laughs) wants. It it is a little hard to feel that sympathy. But I think I do think Julia Roberts sells it. And I think that that moment where they all laugh it off is 
a gift that they're giving to her. Like they're, I, I definitely don't think it's like derisive or dismissive or like that they haven't been touched by this quite frank insight into the life of a stranger that they all see at a, a, a pretty elevated remove. I think when they, they kind of laugh and say, oh, no, that's not convincing at all. They're helping her kind of like gloss over her moment of, of pain and vulnerability, I think, in a pretty sweet way. Like, I, I like that about the scene. I think that the thing there isn't ultimately the question of whether whether she's convincing, whether she has the hard, hardest luck story, although it kills me that we don't know who gets the damn brownie only because they turned it into such a competition that they're all pretending to care about. But I think what that scene really gives us isn't her life is pathetic, but her her willingness to be that vulnerable and the need that underlies it, like the just like the naked need to be seen and to have somebody understand what kind of pain she experiences lets her drop her guard in front of all of these people. And it's a it's a pretty compelling move compared to the the guardedness that we talked about earlier that she has throughout so much of this movie. Yeah. And I, I also want to point out that it's not just that she's commenting on being a celebrity. It's being a female celebrity who is known for her her looks, as obviously many uh, female celebrities are. But, you know, she, it is how she is always thought of first as a, a beautiful, attractive and desirable woman. And, you know, we do get that scene in the restaurant a little later where they overhear the guys talking very uh, the guys at the next table talking very crudely about. Anna and you know it provides another kind of fun moment for their relationship but it also you know kind of gives insight into the sort of thinking that she is kind of I guess internalized and and that makes her real shut off in this way although she can obviously turn it on and uh, slap them down when uh, when called upon to do so or maybe when inspired to do so by by will is what we're supposed to take from from that again, it's interesting to have that coming from Curtis, who, as we've already discussed, is maybe not the best at like writing interiority for his his female leads. But I think in the commentary we get about sort of the public ownership, I guess, of, of all celebrities, but uh, especially when you add a, a sexual component to that with, with female celebrities, how it can be really dehumanizing. And I think that dehumanization is just something that has visibly affected Anna. Well, and there's a bit at the end of the Friends dinner that we're talking about that we're supposed to find funny that I actually find incredibly sad when she and Hugh Grant leave and all they all hear the Friends immediately cheering and freaking out. It's like she's had this vulnerable moment with these people at dinner. And <laughs> the second she is out of earshot, she is just instantly like a celebrity object to them again. And I actually... Mm-hmm. I find it grimmer than I think the movie wants me to in general, but I find the movie's relationship with her celebrity pretty interesting in that, like, Will instantly knows who she is. There is no pretense where, like, they don't give him the out of, like, oh, I'm just a guy who works at a travel bookstore and I've, I don't pay attention to what Hollywood's doing. Like, he he knows that she's an actress. He, he is attracted to her. Everyone else knows who she is right away. And his even the fact that he doesn't tell his friends that, he's bringing a celebrity to dinner is like a creepy thing to do. And it puts her in a very uncomfortable position. The movie doesn't really reckon with that. But like, I do think there is, there is something going on with his fascination with her that is about objectifying her. And, and I think maybe if the movie were a little sharper, it would make that point a little, a little more completely that like, 
what's really tragic about her situation is even in this, which seems to be the healthiest relationship she's ever had, there is just no getting away from the fact that she's the most famous person in the world. And I'm not, I'm not sure what either of them is supposed to do with that because it might just be an unanswerable problem for anyone she would ever meet or date in the history of her life at this point. And I, I can see why Julia Roberts might have wanted to play a character like that in 1999. And I think playing into that dynamic uh, and and also into her unknowability is just the degree to which he doesn't really know what he's dealing with, where she's coming from for a fair bit of the movie, but he's still obsessed with her. And we know that that comes from her celebrity. We know that that comes from the access that he's had to her through movies and the way he's seen her as an objectified figure. There's nothing else that would draw him in because she's given him nothing. She doesn't really talk to him. She doesn't really express herself around him. He's living out a fantasy by kissing a famous movie star and having a famous movie star invite him into an incredibly awkward situation and and so forth and so on. We know that there isn't some kind of like love at first sight thing going on there. He just kind of has the hots for this famous lady who kissed him. And I don't think, again, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I do think it maybe Curtis is not necessarily aware of how that comes off I, I i think you're i think maybe this all just comes down to saying i think you're very right in saying that the film could be sharper and more insightful about the specific kind of fantasy that it's giving us and giving him as opposed to sort of presenting this all as uh, like a, a sweet romantic uh, story from day one and they attempt to reckon with that by quoting that gilda line the you know they go to bed with gilda and they wake up with me but it's not clear. I don't think that lands all the way when there's no there there with her. You know, we don't really get the second level except for really that one dinner scene. And the movie kind of zips through what I presume was their actual courtship to give us that closing shot. But we don't we don't really see how it develops or how it could possibly develop without the constant scrutiny that there would be if they really became a couple. Uh, you know, we, we watch her get out of a limo at a premiere, but but there is a whole story that the movie just sort of elides because. Probably because it's an impossible story. I, I don't know what that relationship could look like in a normal world. I mean, we see, we're, we're just going to skip ahead, uh, as we so often do, but we kind of see that exactly how that story would play out in Marry Me. And it's it's the bulk of the film. So I think it is interesting how those two films fit together, because in in Marry Me, we spend a lot of time on like, what would the mechanics of that relationship be? And it's not an unknowable or untellable story. It's a, a very sentimental one. But again, it's kind of about living out a fantasy. Listening to you talk before, Tasha, about like, of, of course, Will knows who she is. Like, of course, he's like, you know, bowled over by by her celebrity. It made me wonder if that opening narration of Will's uh, was oh, maybe added to to underline the fact that, yes, he does know who Anna Scott is, because throughout their whole first meeting, like he doesn't really give any indication that he knows her, at least not verbally. You know, we can like maybe read it in his reaction. But I think if we didn't have that opening narration, you could also just read that scene as he is just a guy who runs a bookstore and doesn't really follow movies. And, you know, is just she's so beautiful. And that's why he's he's drawn to her. So um, I think this film opens a little clumsily between like the montage of Anna's stardom and then that opening narration from Will that, that I mentioned. I don't want to say it needs to be there because I think you could do it more elegantly, but it does serve a purpose of sort of setting up the dynamic of her celebrity in relation to Will. 
So to kind of bring us full circle to where um, we started talking about this, this is not the last rom-com that either Hugh Grant or Julia Roberts would do, but it is kind of the last of that first run that kind of define sort of the classic rom-coms done in the, the, the star personas that made them famous. From this, I think they both kind of twist up their on-screen personas. Uh, could they have kept going? I mean, uh, is, is it, does this feel like it has to be the end of the line for Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts' uh, classic rom-com stars? I mean, I don't see why. He he joked, and again, this is, uh, I t- I'm taking this from Scott's book. He's joked about how he got old and ugly, and they they didn't want him to play leading men in rom-coms anymore, and what a relief it was. But he's certainly not reached that point yet here, if indeed it's actually true now. Well, I think the larger point is, is, is like, I, I, from this, is there's sort of a a sour quality to, to his characters, and uh, her characters seem to get more complicated. There's kind of a sense that it's kind of a last ride uh, in some ways, um, or am I just kind of like reading too much into it from the perspective of history? I, I just think that's very historical. I was going to say, I guess, sort of following Scott's point about how when they leave that dinner, everybody cheers and she hears it, and it's just kind of a very bitter note. What struck me in that scene is that Hugh Grant immediately follows it by saying in just a very self-effacing way, oh, they do that whenever I leave. I don't know why I've tried to get them to stop. And it's just... It's exactly Hugh Grant. You know, it's just this very charming, self-effacing, like self-undercutting moment where he says exactly the right thing to put somebody at their ease by kind of taking the burden on himself, which is a very British form of humor, really, and something that you do see in a lot of like British rom-coms in particular. And he's just kind of the master of it, you know, uh, doing that that little like blink and stutter thing that he does where he kind of admits that he doesn't have really any idea what's going on. Like, he's still very charming. He has the one thing that he does in these movies, and he does it over and over and over, and he does it quite well. But I certainly wasn't feeling in 1999, uh, like any sense that people were sick of Hugh Grant and the Hugh Grant thing. Maybe in the abstract of, would you like to watch 10 more Hugh Grant movies? They were. But in the specifics of like, here's Hugh Grant actually saying something charming, maybe not so much. What what, what year was his big scandal? Before this. Oh, see? 94, 95. Well, there you go. Yeah. He's, yeah. Uh, he's, he's, he's back from being canceled and... Uh, on to just being Hugh Grant. And this is kind of true of Julia Roberts as well. Like he did it's not like he did that many rom-coms before. Like like obviously Four Weddings and a Funeral was a, a huge breakout and this is notable for, you know, repeating that movie to to large extents, but like I think it was pretty much just 9 months unless am I missing any other like big ones in that period between Four Weddings and this? Yeah, I think it's more that he was associated with the, you know, the courtesy in rom-com renaissance in a way that, I mean, he still, he still made more. I mean, when he went to Hollywood, he just immediately made rom-coms because that's, that's what they wanted him in. But I do think as a logical end point, I think Bridget Jones's diary uses him maybe a little more fruitfully. Like, like that was probably where he needed to go, where it sort of weaponizes that, that kind of, like you say, Tasha, that kind of self-effacing British charm, but does it in a way that makes him the villain. 
which not incidentally is by all accounts much closer to his actual personality. <laughs> um, and it, that was a movie he didn't want to do. Sharon Maguire, the director, was desperate for him to do it. And I think if Richard Curtis hadn't really come on as a screenwriter knowing Helen Fielding and, you know, it was two friends working together, I don't think Hugh Grant would have done it at all playing Daniel Cleaver. But I think that that was where he needed to go and was maybe the right middle ground between the persona he had developed and what he actually brings to the table, which is a, you know, much suaver, more snake-like, self-assured. I, I, I think that, that to me is maybe a more quintessential Hugh Grant rom-com character in the end than, than Will, who, who is essentially just the character he played in Four Weddings, but now he has a bookstore. A failing <laughs> bookstore, which I think maybe another thing about uh, Hugh Grant and maybe rom-coms in general is the, the characters tend to have overly perfect professions for what they're doing. And like, I am the genteel manager of an unsuccessful travel-focused bookstore that's all about the things that we want to do in life and, and the places we haven't been and yet desire to go, and yet it's falling apart around me. It's just like the most rom-com thing imaginable. And it also somehow finances a three-floor flat in, in Notting Hill. Like, I, I think, you know, that's another hallmark of a, a lot of rom-coms and like Richard Curtis's in, in particular is that these characters tend to be you know, pretty m money is ne never an issue. He did not take a oh, roommate, absolutely. though. I mean, you know, I mean, it's possible that that's just telling and that the reason that character grates a little bit is that that is Richard Curtis's idea of, you know, the the unwashed non rich is that they're all mm -hmm. like slobby yabos who don't know how to comb their hair or put on clothing. Well, and in terms of how personal can you get, Richard Curtis owned that house in Notting Hill with the blue I door. I saw that. Is, yeah. That is how 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 drawn from his life does he need to go to make a rom com? It turns out pretty drawn from his life. And and, and he sold it later, so that's one way to increase your your property value. It's make it iconic through a movie. Unconventional, <laughs> but, yeah. but very savvy. He should have yeah. just you know kept the set as it was and give, given tours and everything. Like, you know, he's, yeah. he's, he's throwing away money here. This just makes me wonder if the the brownie thing actually happened to him at a dinner, uh, because you know he he has talked in interviews about uh, how much he stole from his friends' weddings for four weddings and a funeral, and I can easily believe that some of those dinners, like sitting around with those surprisingly specific friends, having weirdly specific conversations, are like drawn from actual people he knows, actual conversations he's had at dinner. So if you think there's echoes of the creators in uh, this film, wait till we get to Marry Me in the next episode. In the meantime, however, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion. And anything else in the world of film, email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share any responses with us and other listeners. In our next episode, we'll compare Notting Hill with a pretty direct descendant, the new film Marry Me, in which ordinary guy Owen Wilson and global superstar Jennifer Lopez kind of accidentally fall in love. Uh, look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcast of choice for ad-free versions of this podcast and extra content, including letters from other listeners. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. We're also at, at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, please remember that yogurt is not mayonnaise and cannot be treated interchangeably.